and they don't have enough teeth. Hi, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Audrey. And I'm Elliot. And this is the show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes, and instead get up close and personal with the lesser known legacies and real life bad behavior of some of history's most notable and beloved people. Hey, Elliot. Hey, Audrey. Do you know what season it is? Oh, plot twist. It is spring now, officially? Yeah. Is that it? Ish, yeah. By the time folks listen to this, it will absolutely be, I think, technically spring. I think we're about to in, hit in the, the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah, hit the equinox or solstice. Which one is it? Summer solstice, so spring equinox. About to get their sure. Aries season today. Watch out. Is that vernal? Is that what the vernal equinox? Yo, man, you're talking to the wrong person. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, okay. Um, no, it's um, spend $100 at Home Depot to grow $4 worth of cucumber season. <laughs> yes, okay, yes. You're really embracing the uh, the green thumb. Yeah, well, our kid was like, I really want a vegetable garden. And I was like, I am not going to actually go through the work of building a whole garden. We're going to get two large pots. We're mm-hmm. going to grow two specific kinds of vegetables. And if I end up having to do all the work this year, then we're not going to have a garden next year. None. You know, what is the point of having kids if you can't put them in the fields? Uh, right, right. Right. Yeah. Get dirty. Um, they got their hands dirty today. That was fun. Yeah. I'm excited for, you know, in, I guess, 45 to 80 days, depending on which vegetable we're talking about, to come back on here and tell you how badly we failed at this. <laughs> how we how we successfully spent our... Uh hundred dollars on what ended up being two dollars worth of vegetables (laughs) instead of four yeah i mean to be fair i cannot grow flowers or plants i just like do not have the instinct for that but i can do i can do vegetables i can do gardens so as long as i remember that we have these vegetables growing in our yard then then they'll survive but do not give me a potted plant because I can't even keep succulents alive. But when it comes to testing out this garden, investing in it, reaping the seeds that we sowed, <laughs> I think that's the saying. Is that, is that the saying? <laughs> no. Some combination of seeds, sow, reaping, reward. I don't know. It's the principle of the thing. You get it. Yeah. I mean, I do get it. I do get it. Uh Yes, and and speaking of the principle of the thing, that is kind of the uh, point of this week's episode. Oh. Because after uh, you did such a great job with Empedocles, I was not going to be shown up Mm. being the house philosophy major. The house philosopher, if you will. Oh, yeah. Um, Right. I, (laughs) I felt like I had to reassert myself. So just in time for a belated ode to International Women's Day. This week's hero is none other than Aristotle. Audrey, what do you know about Aristotle? Nothing. Nothing. Uh, That's not true. Uh, that is I not mean, true. I know the, the trifecta of like Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato. I actually don't mm-hmm. know the order that they come in, but they're around okay. the same time, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. That's, That's all right. I know. That's all I know. That, really. That's pretty good. Where did they live-ish? Um, the Mediterranean, they're Greek. 
or Roman. See, see, give yourself some credit. Yes. Uh, Greek or Roman. Ancient Greek philosophers. (laughs) That's right. Mm -hmm. The order was Socrates, Mm. then Plato, and then Aristotle. So Aristotle's rounding up the trifecta. Okay. Aristotle is one of the most famous philosophers in the Western tradition. And in fact, he is considered the founder of philosophy to many people mm. in the West. But he came after Empedocles. And I feel like we established pretty pretty solidly that Empedocles <laughs> founded some things. Sure. But here's the difference, right? Okay. So you have these people called the pre-Socratics, mm-hmm. pre-Socrates. Okay. And as we've established now with Empedocles... And with Pythagoras, they're mostly cult leaders, right? Like, (laughs) they are mostly cult leaders exclusively. And then eventually, Socrates does these dialogues where he's just asking questions and not so much leading a cult. Okay. He does die like a cult leader, which is, you know, principled-ish. Sure. Um, He has Plato, who has, like, one big school and approach, and then his most famous student, Aristotle, Related but different, and that really kicks off like philosophy as we think of it today. And it's not just philosophy. Aristotle is considered the first scientist in the West Mm. to many people as well. He has continued to influence modern thought and ideas for thousands of years. He's one of the first major philosophers to have left extensive writings. So Socrates just went around asking people questions, being annoying. Plato did a bunch of dialogues, but other people had to write them down. Aristotle really like went and wrote books. He wrote on physics and biology and zoology, mm. metaphysics, the like big what is there in the universe questions, logic, sure. ethics, aesthetics, poetry, theater, music, psychology, linguistics, economics, politics, meteorology, geology, government, you name it, we got it. Come on down to Aristotle's big list of books. It is all there. <laughs> Yeah, it also feels like he started this long tradition of white men needing to have an opinion on every fucking thing. (laughs) It's like he he would have a podcast if he existed today. Just absolutely imagine thinking you have expertise on all of those topics. Well, so here's the thing. The reason he had expertise on all those topics was, one, because they didn't really know much about any of them. (laughs) Okay. Right? Like... When you like, oh, I'm studying biology, you're literally just like, oh, here's a fish. I'm going to cut it up and like see what's inside. Like you can, he lived in the time when you could basically know everything there is to know about all those topics because there was not that much to know about all those topics. So point two, uh, his opinions, as far as they were like falsifiable claims about the world. Sure. Scientific in any way. They were mostly wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, He was not right about this stuff, but Because he was asking questions in a particular way, the way he asked questions has developed our scientific approach and been passed down through history Mm. uh, and throughout the world. In Europe, as they were reintroduced to the Europeans by Islamic scholars in the Middle Ages, like it has really shaped what we think of as the scientific approach to these questions, even if his approach did not actually get him the right answers. Got it. So, knowing the oversized impact he has had on the development of intellectual life mm-hmm. in the Western world mm-hmm. over the last several thousand years, mm-hmm. let's dig in. At some point, I want to call him the father of audacity. Standard disclaimer for our heroes that lived thousands of years ago, mm-hmm. compared to somebody in like the 
20th, 18th centuries, we know very little about his life. Um, he does leave behind several thousand pages sure. of his thoughts. Yeah. So you can get a picture. None of it, though, is autobiographical, right? All the autobiography we have of him is hearsay. And so it's like either stories related by later philosophers and all that stuff is generally written down like centuries after he died. So you, you can sort out some of the things that are like more plausibly true from others, but because they come from competing schools, it's like uh, pretty unreliable. Got it. Okay. Good to know. We're going to paint a picture, but I feel like we will have, uh, we will be able to glean some key insights and show at least from what we know of his writings, exactly how his influence passed down throughout the, throughout the ages. Let's do it. Aristotle is born on Tuesday, June 17th, 384 BC. No, he wasn't. You don't know that. No, we don't know. We don't. I'm just guessing. Okay, no idea. No idea when he was born. 384 BC, you, though. You think he's a Gemini, though? Is that what you're telling me? You, just your gut reaction? Okay, your yeah, your yeah. gut has, guesses he's a Gemini? Has definite Gemini vibes. Okay, yeah, great. Yeah, for sure. Can't wait. For sure, for sure. <laughs> I'm just wait. really ramping up the chaos. <laughs> Yes. Um, so his he's born and his dad is the physician to the king of Macedon, mm. also known as Macedonia. This is he's living in the time when Greece was going from a bunch of little city states mm -hmm. into an empire. Mm. But at the time, like Macedonia was this like it's a, imagine the north of Greece, like it, Greece is like a little peninsula, and like the top section has like ten or twelve little cities that are all united under this one Macedonian um, empire. His dad works for the king as okay. the doctor. Okay. He is there in the court. So what we do know of him is that he is like very privileged. He has access to powerful people. He's growing up in this environment. To the extent that we have any physical description of him, it is not a very attractive description. Mm. Uh, they described him as having bandy legs, small beady eyes. Ew. Apparently, he was a bit of a dandy, fussed with his hair a lot. Okay, I'm not going to hold that against him. Sure. Uh, it's the again. beady eyes. I don't, I don't fuck with beady eyes. Yeah, it's not again not clear if it's accurate because it, it it's an it energy. Be, they wrote it down because it's a vibe. Like it could be a vibe. That's a thing. You know that he looked at you kind of like a snake, a little snake. -like. It was, okay, it was written by a competing philosophical school, but they had the sense that he was like one of these beady eyed little motherfuckers. You yeah, know, yeah, like, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. that's how they read him. Yeah, I get that vibe too. Grows up in the Macedonian court, and at eighteen, goes out to make his way in the world. He moves to Athens. Biggest city in Greece. And he enters Plato's Academy. Is that like Plato's Closet for secondhand clothing? That's where they actually get the name from. They called the Plato's Academy after Plato's Closet, the thrift store. Yeah, yes. that's right. That's right. Okay. <laughs> Just making sure that we are clear on the timeline. Yes, precisely. Um, there were other schools of philosophy in Athens at the time. The things that made this different. So Plato didn't charge for admission. Okay. He was pretty well off as well. The academy was very high-minded. Mm. It was very values-driven. Okay. It was all about the pursuit of philosophical truth. So there were schools that the sophists ran, like that were very much about like teaching people how to speak well, how to like Got it. give charismatic talks. Oration. Oration. Yeah. In modern speech you might say that the sophist schools were more about like how to get your mba okay and plato was more of like go get your phd not useful not a lot of job prospects 
but a particular personality type, right? No offense to any of our PhD folks here, you BDI motherfuckers. (laughs) You know who you are. People with PhDs are not listening to this podcast. No, No. they could not put up with our bullshit. Not at all. No way. Not at all. They get through one episode Um, and they're like, I'm out. I'm out. Yes. So imagine, right, a BDI little 17 year old, 18 year old Aristotle shows up to the academy and just full of audacity, Mm -hmm. right? He distinguishes himself pretty quickly. Must have been at least a little bright because he quickly becomes known as, quote, the reader. Mm. He's also sometimes called the brains of the school. Quickly asserts himself as one of the star pupils. At first, Plato's like super into having, you know, a protege. Over time, he's there for a long time. He's there for 20 years. Oh. It's like his thing, right? Sure. And as he gets older and more confident, Plato uh, develops a new nickname for him. He calls him the foal. Foal, like the, uh, like tiny horse? Yeah, like a tiny horse. Because specifically, tiny horses kick their mothers. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. and I'm not a horse girl. I don't know. Well, neither am I. But apparently they kick their mothers. And he is basically starting to say, like, Aristotle is over these years turning into an ungrateful little dick about some of the stuff. Like, he okay. can't accept these teachings well he's got to go and like do his own thing put his own spin on this and he's he's no longer respectful mm. develops this unique perspective uh over the course of 20 years until plato dies once plato dies aristotle's like 38 he's not sticking around for whatever bullshit whoever you know he's not taking over this school and he's not going to stick around for whoever's going to try to fill plato she's like no no, no I, know, I know too much for this so aristotle decides to leave he traipses about for a couple months and then he ends on the island of lesbos it is this large some people have this image of greek islands with like these little houses kind of tidy on rocky stuff mm-hmm. no this is a large kind of like ramshackle agricultural island half of it is like super dry but half of it is like these beautiful forests with rivers and meadows wildflowers he's here with his philosophical ideas he's like i gotta study the natural world so he's like goes into this lagoon it's 13 mile long lagoon right it is 30 feet deep it one of the richest bodies of water in the entire known world at this point can you you know yesterday we were at the park and our kid was like look at that lake and it was like a a canal it wasn't a lake. what's a lagoon like what distinguishes a lagoon from i don't know a trench i am glad you asked oh, okay great. basically it means it is a stretch of salt water ah okay but it is separated from the open sea by either a sandbank or a coral reef okay. it's like ocean but calmer okay okay so it's got all of these vibrant ocean life forms got it and he just starts just looking at them, describing them, writing down descriptions, cutting them open, digging around in their guts a little bit. The, the, the lagoons or the animal, the ocean the creatures. Animals. Okay, got it. The animals. He, they're sardines, cuttlefish he makes accounts of. It ends up, what he writes, we, we don't have definitive proof on this, but what he writes could be the oldest description of any natural place in the world. Oh, Wow. Right. Like when we talk about like starting biology, right? People were not writing down just like, here's what I see around me. They were trying to write stories about here's how the world was formed, or whatever. But he's like writing down very specific descriptions of all this stuff, trying to like figure out what makes stuff tick, what do things have in common. He also starts to develop some ideas, and those are just totally wrong. But you know, 
One example of how he gets this very wrong, he makes these fantastic descriptions of the migratory birds. So there's millions of birds that are migrating between Europe and Africa, stop at the island of Lesbos on their way. And he sees this and he makes these descriptions of the birds and what they're doing. And the conclusion he draws is that when birds are migrating, they are stopping on this island, but they are trying to get away from the winter. Mm. And the way they do that is they stop on this island, but then their ultimate destination in the winter is that they go and land in a river and then swim down to the bottom of the river. No. And then hang out at the bottom of the river for several months until the winter is over after they've hibernated underwater for months. And then in the spring, they, they come out. If there's ice, they break through the ice, and then they start flying again in the spring. That's wild. You could have proved this wrong pretty easily by just putting a bird underwater for like three minutes <laughs> and seeing what happened. Yikes. I mean, yeah, he's taking what he knows about fish. That's what fish do. They go to the bottom and just like slow yep. their metabolism. And he was like, mm -hmm. this applies to all creatures. All creatures yep, live underwater for periods of time during the winter. Yeah, again, so he, like the fact that nobody else has written anything down, it does make him like, oh, wow, you're the first person to like do these fantastic descriptions of nature. First doesn't mean but right. Doesn't mean right at all. Like he, like the moment he like steps out of the just like here's what I see. He's like, oh, there's a steep drop to the next right. to the next step of knowledge here. Right. It's like Heaven's Gate was the first people to try and ride the tail of Hailbop. Doesn't mean it was right. <laughs> does not mean it worked out for them. No, no, it does not. So he's here on this island for three years. He spent twenty years at Plato's Academy. Three years on this island. He meets a woman named Pythias. He has a daughter with her. Oh, wow. They named the, they named the daughter Pythias because... Why not? Good name. But after writing descriptions of over 500 different types of creatures, he gets a message. And the message is from the new king of Macedonia. Okay. Back up northern Greece. And the new king of Macedonia has taken over and is looking for a tutor for the prince. Of Macedonia. Okay. And they're like, hey, Aristotle, your dad used to be the king's doctor. I'm a new king. I need a tutor. You've been studying with this smart guy, Plato, but he's dead now. Aristotle, you want to come back home and be the tutor? And he says, yes. They get on the ship, go back home. This is Aristotle and Pythias 1 and 2. Yes. Although Pythias does, Pythias 1 ends up dying. On the uh, ship? At some point. Not on the ship. Shortly after arriving, I believe. Okay, Don't yeah. quote me on that. Okay. But dies relatively quickly. Great. So we've got Aristotle and baby Pythias. Baby Pythias. Aristotle lands here and becomes the head of the Royal Academy. He begins to tutor the prince. He's like, first of all, have you heard about ducks? Let me tell you <laughs> what they do in the winter. You are not going to believe this shit, man. You Listen to this. You are not going to believe it. <laughs> Do you have any idea who the prince is? Oh, God, no. Absolutely not. Alexander? That would be my only guess. It is Alexander. Is the it? mediocre at this point. Oh, yeah. Wow. He hasn't done anything great so far. But oh. eventually... That's the only, will, only name that came to mind. He will become Alexander the Great. It turns out in this time, Aristotle actually tutors three future kings. So there's Alexander, yeah. and then there's Ptolemy and Cassander, who are mm. both two people who are like in Alexander's... Mm -hmm. uh, 
court slash generals that vie for the throne once Alexander eventually dies, but yeah. he is tutoring Alexander the Great. And not a goddamn one of them knows anything about birds. Not, not one. I mean, they know what they look like. They they know very clearly what they look like. Yeah. They're Just very confused on the details. Leading kingdoms, not sure where the ducks go from December to March. No idea. No. And so some future biologists describe Aristotle and what he's teaching He's teaching about a bunch of things. Let's just stay on biology for a second, okay. right? Biologists say he's not a Darwinian in most senses. Oh, you think? Darwin has like a good sense of the taxonomy of creatures. Mm -hmm. And that's what Aristotle was doing. He was like, okay, here's the different groups and categories, blah, blah, blah. But he's not an evolutionist at all. Okay. He's not even a creationist. Sure. He's he like he's an eternalist. He basically is like, here's all the types of creatures there are, and they've always been this way forever and ever, exactly like this. Like that's his that's his theory, right? It's just always been this way. He did not take a page out of Empedocles' book and think they're made of different mm -hmm. ratios of elements. No, he's like, these are all this goes back to kind of what he's learning with Plato, who believes that there's like an eternal perfect version of everything. And okay. basically how perfect each of these things are, whether it's a person or a shape or an animal, is all just like how much overlap do you have with this perfect thing that lives somewhere in the perfect dimension, basically? Amazing. Um, it's a theory of forms. Regardless, there's this. He starts talking about what it looks like to be a good ruler, what it looks like to be a good citizen, what is ethics, what is like the whole source of the universe, what does it mean to like act well, what is, you know, ethics and logic all kind of like are basically baked into this giant worldview mm -hmm. that Alexander's going to take with him, that if you use your mind, it's not that you're trying to like follow some religion or follow some set of gods. You can just use your mind, start looking into the world and figure out rules that apply to nature and science and the weather. But those same rules can help you understand human affairs, which can then help you understand the right way to live and act. Mm -hmm. And so basically human behavior is all an extension of this very uh, natural order of the universe and that we mm. just like live well by bringing ourselves in alignment with like whatever the natural state of the world is. Oh, so naturally Aristotle is just like a super good dude. Top to bottom, no flaws. Very so ethical. Funny you should ask. So during this time, he is the head of the Royal Academy for roughly eight years. Okay. This is basically from when Alexander's gone from 10 to 18, kind of. And during this time, he's like bestowing his wisdom on this young Alexander, trying to mold a future king into someone who will be just and great and all of these things. And then women show up. Young Alexander hits puberty and gets distracted from his studies and then Aristotle's like, nope, gotta study the birds and the cuttlefish and alexander is just not really into it alexander takes a wife already wow just one and in his like teenage years yeah at this point it's either a consort or a wife okay. not really clear a companion a companion of some sort aristotle's pushing back and eventually aristotle's like look you have to restrain yourself from quote frequently approaching your wife you're you're getting distracted. Okay. It's quote impeding your spirit from seeking the general good. Okay. It's like it's like when sports players aren't supposed to have sex like at the morning of the Super Bowl or whatever. Exactly. But what if the Super Bowl is that you're going to be king in 10 years and you can't have sex 
that whole time. Okay, well, yeah, not yeah. exactly, not exactly, but he's like, get your head in the game, right? Yeah, you got bigger stuff to worry about. Yeah. So the next thing I'm going to tell you is disputed. Okay, by who? By Aristotle himself? <laughs> no, by historians. So the thing to understand is this story is very present in history. Okay. Once you get to like the 13th century and on. Okay. But there's a big gap between when this allegedly happened and when it first shows up in the stories. By like 3,000 years, right? Not quite 3,000. So 13th century, 300 BC, okay. more like 1,500 1500 years. 1,600 years. 300 years. BC. That's right. That's right. Not 3,000 BC. So there is a big gap. And it could be that the documents or records that talked about this in between or just lost could be that somebody in the 13th century just made this up i love both options really and when i'm giving you quotes here what i'm giving you quotes are these quotes are directly from the 13th century manuscript okay so the frequently approaching his wife the impeding his spirit okay according to this manuscript alexander is like okay okay fine 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 i got it my head's in the game stop fucking around literally with my wife mm -hmm. and like pay attention to the greater good okay the queen is upset by this, or the consort. Phyllis is her name. Phyllis is like, my path to any kind of power and control in this situation mm -hmm. revolves around the, the Alexander coming to me for what I have to offer. Right. Got a plan. She begins to walk around Aristotle when he's not busy tutoring the future king, and she crosses paths with him more than usual. And when she crosses path with him, she makes sure that she has, quote, bare feet and disheveled hair. Uh-oh. So that she might entice him. Oh, okay. I thought she was just, like, rubbing it in his face, like, sex hair. Like, I just, I was just messing with Alexander, so, ooh. She's going for the look, but she's okay. also, like, giving him a little wink, a little nod, you know? Okay, yep. And eventually, after crossing paths enough, Aristotle who's been talking a big game mm -hmm. about restraining yourself, begins to be enticed by this. Okay. So after being enticed sufficiently, he begins to, quote, solicit her carnally. Oh. He's like, let's make this happen. I see how you're walking around with no feet or <laughs> bare feet around here with No feet makes it mess. more fun, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this bare feet, hair all, you know. And she's like, okay, okay. Not so fast, though. This is serious. I'm married to the king. If we're going to make this happen, I need to know that you're not just testing me. Right. You can't just say you, you want to, you know, make this happen without being serious. She's like, I need a sign that, of your love. So I want you to go to my chamber. And when you get in there, I want you to crawl around on your hands and knees. No, please don't read it like this. I don't like that. And I want you... To let me ride you like a horse. I really don't like the way that that's being read. <laughs> it sounds way too like, sexual. And she's like, then I'll know that you aren't deluding me. And then we can give in to our carnal desires. Quite the adventure he has to go on. In later versions of this, the descriptions just get more and more wild. Okay. It's not just like riding him like a horse. And it's side saddle because that's how they ride. In future versions of the story... They talk about how she's like, and you have to have a saddle because I don't want to lose my, I don't want to slip off. And if you have the saddle, you've got to have like the bridle between your teeth. Okay. 
and she has like the whip and she's like whipping him. Okay. Right. Okay. She's wow. like, this is how I know. Like if I get to ride you with a saddle and the thing in your teeth and a whip, then like, that's, that's what I'm into. Then we can make this happen. That's the kind of foreplay she wants. Right. Okay. And Aristotle just can't say no. Cause he's seen those feet of hers. Seen him. He's like, all right, let's do it. Let's do it. And, and, and she's gotta be what, like, like 20 something. And he's like 50 yeah. something at this point. Oh yeah, yeah. He's, he's like 45. Okay. Yeah. So he's like, okay, okay, okay. So he shows up and he's like, oh, let's do this. Put that saddle on me. Put the thing in his teeth. Yeah. All right. She sits Ooh. down and she's like whipping him with the whip. Right. And he's like walking around the room. Okay. Here's the thing though. It was a setup. Of course it was a setup. Because. Because she needs she the said, power. Yes, she told Alexander, she's like, hey, 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 go stand across the courtyard by this window. And I want you to watch in my room, see what happens in like 20 minutes. <laughs> sure enough, Alexander comes to the window and this old nasty man who's been telling him like, stay away from the wife. She's she's distracting you. You can't you can't give in to the carnal desires. His wife is fucking riding him like a pony yeah. with a whip and everything. And he is pissed. So he charges in, he goes across, busts in, opens the doors in the middle of this scene. And you, I mean, just put yourself there. Imagine the look on Aristotle's face, right? When the future king walks in and his wife is sitting on your back in a saddle with the whole whip, just probably laughing her ass off at this point. Uh, and he's like, Aristotle, I'm going to kill you. They fully I'm killed kill people, you. like really legitimately fully killed people for way less than that. Oh, way less, way less, way less. Okay, but you don't get to be the head of the Royal Academy of Macedonia and a student of Plato without thinking on your feet. So this happens. So Aristotle like pulls the little bridle out of his teeth, <laughs> takes the saddle We're really off, editorializing here. And he says, uh, in so many words, this is one of my greatest lessons to you. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and Alexander's like, what? And he's like, imagine if this, this is part of the quote from the manuscript. If this has happened to me, an old man who is most wise, that I was deceived by a woman, you can see that I've taught you well and that it could happen to you too, a strong young man. Oh, whoa. That's quite and the angle. And Alexander's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. These bitches do be tricksy. <laughs> ah, okay, okay. Point taken. It worked. Right. And he turned it around. Yeah. He turned it around. And Alexander was like, okay, I'm not going to kill you. You made that. You make a good point. You make a good point. If they were able to get you. Listen, all's fair in love and war. And, you know, what if you are in battle and the enemy sends over a lady disguised as not the enemy and... She slits your throat in the middle of the night. Like, it could happen. That's why not they have, like, of. traveling concubines. Yes, not unheard of at all. It's too risky. Yeah. So, Aristotle manages to save his life right here. Mm. But I will say that this story, right, where he is, like, humiliated by this woman, is hugely popular in the Middle Ages. Okay. It is popular for a bunch of reasons. It's popular in different countries at different times. There's... English and French and German and Latin transcriptions of this story. It surfaces partly in, in books of priest sermons, like cautionary tales about like womanly wiles. But it also is part of this larger tradition of 
stories that illustrate the weird dynamics of power in what ends up being a very patriarchal, misogynistic society. Oh, yeah. Of course. Right. Of course. She's the villain, right? She's both the villain, but also there's these ways in which it is asserting that like women have this power. And so some of the romantic courtly lovers like have this as like something that's inscribed on lockets and things like little these scenes with this woman riding him like as a um recognition of the type of power that women can hold over even the wisest men right like you could you can put these men in this position so it it is both like a a warning and like a moralistic thing but it's also reclaimed by women to be like this Mm. is like the type of authority we wield over men like it says a lot of things in this uh type of time when the politics were pretty violently misogynistic but women still wanted to have some signifier Mm. of the authority that they could wield got it one thing that's for sure though is that aristotle's opinions of women do not get more generous (laughs) after this incident allegedly happened he is really pissed. I'm and sure. And a few years later, when Alexander becomes the king and goes off to like conquer the entire known world, right? He begins his conquest of this empire that essentially encompasses all of the land that all of these people know about existing. At that point, Aristotle goes to Athens. Plato's gone. He starts his own school, calls it the Lyceum. And over the next 12 years, he starts to write many of his actual works, like all of these books we talked about and all these different topics, he starts writing them at this point. And the one like unifying, consistent thing that he has to say about women is that they are just terrible. <laughs> he, is, he just has this like virulent misogyny, again, whether or not based out of like his experience being ridden and humiliated by this woman or not. Uh, he just is incredibly misogynistic at every opportunity. That's rich coming from a man who spent years on the island of Lesbos. Come on, man. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, but didn't didn't wear off on him whatsoever. Hmm. Um, now, there's people who say like, oh, well, he's proud of his time, blah, blah, blah. No. Not everybody hated women at the time. Like, no, not everybody was fact- like, hey, women are the worst. Yes, Aristotle's teacher, like the school where he came out of, where he inherited a ton of his like philosophical approach. Plato believed men and women had similar natures fundamentally, mm-hmm. except for physical strength. He still didn't think women were as good as men, but he basically thought like women have all of the same rights and abilities and mental faculties as men, just like not quite as much because they're smaller and daintier or whatever, but like not fundamentally different. Aristotle was like, no opposite of that you're totally wrong (laughs) women are naturally inferior in every way should be a subservient domestic role just like hard break there's this text about the misogyny in early philosophical texts and uh cynthia freeland who's a scholar in this area wrote aristotle says that the courage of a man lies in commanding and a woman's lies in obeying that for quote matter yearns for form as the female yearns for the male and the ugly yearns for the beautiful Also, Aristotle said uh, a woman is perhaps, quote, an inferior being. Women were immature. He used the term monstrous at some point. He also, like, had just really irrational views about women. Like, uh, women are inferior and have fewer teeth than men. This is such 
big incel energy where he's like i hate women they won't fuck me and then he's like and they don't have enough teeth (laughs) (laughs) they don't have enough teeth (laughs) now here's the thing unlike all of the bird migration stuff you would have had to like theoretically see them go you could just count counted women's teeth it's the same number of teeth (laughs) didn't bother to go through that effort because he was like no i just know they have less teeth like look at their fucking teeth they gotta have less of them um yeah it's wild that is weird says that female is an incomplete male or as it were a deformity i mean just like real like that is really incel stuff nasty yeah real incel stuff held this so tightly he literally said that his opinions of women should always apply in fiction as well because if you included a woman in fiction that was too brave or too clever, that would be inappropriate and give a wrong view of the world. Did he think this across species or this is just human women? This is human women specifically. Okay, but but female gophers, they're fine. They got all the teeth the male gophers got. <laughs> well, I actually don't know about the teeth counting of the animals. Okay, okay. I will say that he thought that in general the spectrum of like the hierarchy was like perfection at the top. Mm-hmm. Didn't really believe in a God per se, okay. but like perfection at the top and animals at the bottom. And then in between were like slaves mm. and then women. Okay. And then men. Slavery here is not race-based casts of slavery. It's like usually by conquest, but still definitely like women are better than gophers, but on the same spectrum as gophers compared to men. And he's pro-slavery, right? He like argues that slavery is good for society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He Oof. argues that slavery is good for society. Slavery is part of this like economic system that is about like capturing your neighbors and making them work for you. Their slavery did end up being like a temporary thing compared to what we think of as slavery yeah. in the American sense, yeah. where it wasn't like generational. It was like a state that you were, it was like if you lost, that was your penalty for losing, basically. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I just, I mean, here's the thing. I Has he seen women? I know. I know. He's seen them, right? He like looked around and was like, you know what? Men, better than that? No. Yeah, well, so I will tell you, he mm-hmm. has seen women and he is making other claims about women when it comes to the relation to men. So for example, he can say all of this, right? He can say with one writing that women are inferior and have less teeth and are deformed, blah, blah, blah. And then he's also got other writings that are saying, I'm not sure if you need them for reproduction. Oh. I think you do, but blondes are better at sex. (laughs) Uh, Specifically... Wow. He has a data yes. size, like enough women or like a sample size to, to compare. Apparently, because he doesn't just say blondes are better at sex. What he says is that it seems like the one of the keys to reproduction is uh, female ejaculation during sex. Okay. And he believes that blondes are better at that. Okay. So this starts to scream like... Really limited sample size. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, it sure does. Real anecdotal. It, it's so interesting, right? So he doesn't have a technical word for orgasm at the time. The language doesn't. Right. It's very clear what he's talking about, though. And he's yeah. clear that women have pleasure in sex. And he thinks that pleasure is equivalent to a man. And he just thinks that blondes get particularly aroused. Okay. And he thinks 
it's he's not exactly clear if sex is necessary for women to conceive at all. But he, um, with all those pregnant men walking around, yeah, of course. Right? Uh, but he, it, yes. does he not? It, I, was he blind? The teeth thing, the <laughs> the bird thing, the thinking women are deformed, never seeing pregnant men, but not convinced women are the ones that can get pregnant. And again, this is strictly speaking, like his observations back then. Let's mm-hmm. you know, men can be pregnant right like that is trans men can have babies etc etc none of his observations seem like that hard to disprove no it doesn't and and again this is like another example of taken to the extreme the bird thing right (laughs) what he does is he's like he's one of the first people in history to like actually write about female reproduction and and the difference between different bodily fluids of women like the difference between menstrual fluids and vaginal lubrication and Mm -hmm. urine from female ejaculation and like understands these things as like separate and that's like something nobody in history has ever written about as far as we can tell right so he's like doing observations and then he's like also i think that must mean that light-skinned light-haired women are better at sex and babies and everything else related to life and you're like wait where did you get that from? You're, Where did that come from? You're, you're telling on yourself, Aristotle. Yeah, like really is. Listen, I get it. Writing is hard. Writing's hard. Sometimes you don't find the right words. But if you can't find the right words, sometimes you just shouldn't write stuff down. No, you really shouldn't. There's a lot of stuff where he, he could have just like stopped like a couple a couple points sooner. Yeah. And really still had the same fundamental contribution. Yeah. But didn't. And we don't need to so, know those things about him. There's just more no. than I want to know about Aristotle when it comes to sex. He writes extensively about what he thinks a good society looks like. He writes ethics treat, treatises and describes like the structure he thinks a good society should have and how there should be he talks about the concept of like the philosophers and the kings and how people's civic duty is related to their position in this ideal society and how that's a mirror of the way that you should govern your own internal urges and things women are no part of this right like he's writing about men because again he's like taking women out of this equation as a human person in the public life he continues to write Dozens and dozens of these works, observing, making very questionable extrapolations from his observations, and maligning everything to do with women. Over the next 12 years, dies in Athens in the year 322, the age of 62, and catapults into history. Hmm. People continue to talk about him. They spin off schools. They continue to pass down his writings. They're lost for a while. They re-enter. And I would like to spend a beat, if we can, talking about the way that Aristotle is responsible for, albeit indirectly, the Texas abortion ban. Oh, wow. Okay. When we talk about the kind of influence he had, Aristotle is popular over the course of the Middle Ages. And we get to St. Thomas Aquinas. Mm-hmm. We're now in the year 1225, 13th century, when these other stories are re-entering. The Dark Ages, for people who haven't heard this before, dark refers to a lack of sources and information about it, right? It doesn't mean that all of this knowledge was lost in between, but we do have this big gap in the historical record. When it picks back up and we have records, Thomas Aquinas is considered this like huge influence over Christian theology in general. Christianity this time basically just means the Catholic Church. 
But he is the first one we have a record of who explicitly takes this entire philosophical system of Aristotle, this concept of natural law, that there's an order to the universe that we can study through science and biology and physics and meteorology and all these things, apply it to our human experience, and then get ethics and like what the good life looks like in politics and our own interactions. Thomas Aquinas brings natural law to Christianity, which until then had really just been more of like Jewish mystical sect, Mm -hmm. right? In a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. he really makes it like this encompassing philosophical worldview. And this takes off. This becomes part of the fundamental church theology for the next, for the next 800 years until present day. Right. As part of this, as part of this worldview that Thomas Aquinas is bringing in, introducing to Christianity and Catholicism, part of this is explicitly the idea that a woman, quote, should have been produced in Eden since she's necessary for the generation of the species, but that she's also, quote, a misbegotten male. She is, quote, defective and female subordination for Aquinas is not a result of the Garden of Eden. It's not a result of Eve tempting Adam, mm-hmm. like had been the case in Christian uh, theology till now. Mm-hmm. But really, it's a part, it's the fact that like God created women inferior. It's not that like, oh, Eve and Adam were like two different people on the same playing field and like she just tempted him and like was responsible for this. Yeah. No, no, no. She tempted him because she was built as inferior. Mm. He brings in Aristotle's idea of this like women have less teeth and he's like that's why we lost heaven. It's because of the te- <laughs> it's, it's because of the teeth defective thing, right? Like and everybody's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, that sounds good." And that from that point in like 1225 to like 1250, that becomes part of Christianity. Yeah. And and you say, "Oh, it's part of the Catholic Church." No, no, no. It's part of the Catholic Church when Catholic Church is the Christianity game, right? Yeah. It is like built it, it, People escape it to more and less degrees later on, but like it is now part of this root of the tree that like springs out to be all the ways we know Christianity today. Fast forward into United States in the 1980s. Nightmare. There's this strain of Catholicism and Christianity that like is carrying on this particular tradition. Vatican II, the Catholic Church tries to like break away from these old kind of roots and like modernize the church. Doesn't go well. There are uh, several groups of people inside the church that are like, that is heresy, right? Mm -hmm. They went back to this core Thomas Aquinas approach. Roe v. Wade happens. Vatican II happens. A bunch of people who are active in politics in the Catholic Church get to them like, nope, we got to stop this. They form something called the Federalist Society. In the 80s, Reagan gets elected. They appoint an attorney general, and the Federalist Society works to get their first explicitly backed Supreme Court nominee, Antonin Scalia, onto the Supreme Court. Antonin Scalia goes and gives talk after talk in his writings privately, publicly, and as a Supreme Court justice about the primacy of natural law, Thomas's Aquinas' approach, explicitly tied back to Aristotle as the fundamental lens through which you have to interpret the U.S. Constitution for it to make sense. And it becomes one of the core pillars of the conservative movement in the United States. Fast forward through Reagan. Both Bushes, Trump's elected during Trump's term uh, in 2019, Attorney General Bill Barr is giving the keynote address at the Federal Society's National Convention, and he is giving this speech. And it is a speech that at the time, if you read the coverage, people who watch like government internal politics and like pay attention to these speeches for clues about like where the priorities lie of the government, they're just kind of shocked because Bill Barr gets up on this podium and basically says, 
quote, the guidance of natural law, a real transcendent moral order which flows from God's eternal law, the divine wisdom by which the whole of creation is ordered, this eternal law is impressed upon us and reflected in all created things. This motherfucker in Trump's term in 2019 is up there being like, Still haven't figured out how many teeth there are. <laughs> no, no. He's like, yes. He's like, whenever you figure out what the laws of the universe are, this, this, you know, assumptions you make, this, whatever, that is going to be the thing that tells us. Now, again, it's, it's through this tradition of Thomas Aquinas, which like integrates it into this Catholic moral theology. Sure. But it is, it is explicitly the backing idea that right-wing organizations have used to push a whole brand new legislative agenda that they call the new natural law. Ew. There's like 300 different publications that have used this term in the last few years. Don't like that. And they are saying explicitly the new natural law is a belief that the constitution itself fully conforms to what Thomas Aquinas would describe as natural law. The constitution then needs to rely on the revelation of God, church teachings, and universal moral guidance that we can get through God, return to the ideas of Aristotle and Aquinas, and that is what justifies the nomination of Supreme Court justices who have their opinions on abortion, contraception, marriage, family, sexuality, gender. All of these things are because they're like, that guy... The guy, the teeth thing, the guy who thought the bird slept underwater for a couple of months. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, like at the end of the day, he had a right. Yes, that, that, was, that was the right approach. That was the way that we should approach society. And that is actually what the Constitution is trying to say. Mm. Mm. I, yeah, I don't like that. I don't like that at all. Doesn't sound so great when you, when you say it in that context. I, I mean, I just really don't like using the justification of like natural order or natural law of things. It's very eugenics-esque. In my mind, I just, it's like red flag central when someone's like, this is the natural order of things. It's like, okay, I'm watching you eat a bag of flaming Hot Cheetos. I don't think you give a shit about anything, natural man. Shut up. I don't know. It feels bad. Yeah, it's super disconcerting, right? Because you can talk about like the enlightenment ideals, right? Which come out much later in human history. It's like, oh, we fundamentally think that people should have democracies because like if we use science, we can just say like, we're going to understand what we can study. And, and fundamentally, we think that's going to get us to a place where we all just kind of learn better, smarter ways to get along, mm -hmm. right? Like fundamentally, we recognize that everybody has their own right to just kind of do their own thing. And if we're going to make a government, then it has to be whatever all of the, everybody can mostly agree to. And like the fundamental recognition there is just that like people have a right to kind of decide these things on their own. And, and there's literally people, in fact, potentially a majority of people on the Supreme Court that are like, no, mm -hmm. no, 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 no. It is not about mm -hmm. what most people can agree to to get along. Yeah. It is about the fact that God has instituted an order. Yeah. They updated Aristotle to be like, there's God and then men and then women and then slaves and then gophers. And in that order, you just have to make all of the things of your government aligned to our particular truth, which we happen to believe is the only one right way to organize a society. Yeah. And then we are currently living through the era where like, that is being put into place. This is not like an archaic world. Like this is a thing that people are fighting to implement, to control people's bodies in Texas, like at this exact moment in history. Yeah. It, it, 
in addition to, you know, reproductive autonomy, it's all things about marginalized people. Let's just use women yeah. here in particular, right? Like, let's talk about the lack of like the making it illegal for kids to get gender affirming care, right? Like, just like all of these different ways that it shows up, right? Yeah. The fight uh, to revert back to an era before marriage equality, right? right? The, the fact that people want to ban contraceptives, like how fucking backwards is this? You know, like yeah. over and over and over again. And the strata across which this goes, it's not right. Just like healthcare, et cetera. I, I can see, let's extrapolate this a little further. Like it makes sense that women only make 77 cents per dollar because they have fewer teeth. Like you don't yes. need the full dollar <laughs> if you don't have the full mouth of teeth. It makes sense. You know what? I've come around to it. It makes sense. <laughs> it makes sense, Dad. You're fully on board with this plan. Yes. All right. So I will say then, despite his unique to that point in history contributions to philosophy, science, biology, physics, political theory, mm -hmm. because of the fact that this dude got topped one time. <laughs> one time. And that butterfly effect of history somehow ended up making us have to listen to and care about what Ted Cruz thinks Great. in this world. For that reason, if nothing else, for that reason alone, Aristotle is not my hero. He's not my hero either. I'd like to hear less from him. In fact, can we go back and erase some of his writings? Just fully take them out. Don't need them. Don't make sense. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we would have gotten around to the fact that Birds are not sleeping at the bottom of rivers somehow anyway. You know, here's the thing. Do we know, though? Do we, we're not biologists. You know I, mean? I feel pretty confident about this. I really do. Like, there's very few things in this podcast. I'm like, you should trust me on this. <laughs> I feel like this is one of the ones I'd put in that category. Come count my teeth. Prove it. Yeah, that's fair. We, there's nothing stopping us from running this experiment ourselves. How I, Yeah, how except the fact that I am a uh, full whole ass vegan and uh, not trying to drown a duck. I'll tell you that. <laughs> no, but what I'm saying is if we come back next week and I've counted your teeth and you do in fact have less, mm -hmm. I do believe that justifies the pay gap. We can justify all sorts of things on this podcast. It, well, if people are looking for dubious justifications of other societal ills uh, before next week, where can they find us? They can find us on social media at Your Heroes Pod or on our website at MeetYourHeroesPodcast.com. Yep. And please like, share, rate, review, spread the word, tell your friends. And until next week. Don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye. Bye.